south of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is episode 215, covering the week of April 27th through May 1st, 2020. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Abbeville Institute, like our Facebook page at Abbeville Institute, and of course, subscribe to our YouTube page at Abbeville Institute. You can find all those social media accounts at our webpage, abbevilleinstitute.org. While you're there, give us an email address. We'll give you a free ebook, Exploring the Southern Tradition by 20 Abbeville Institute scholars. It is a great free ebook. You're going to want it. So just give us an email address. If you already have given us an email address before, give us another one. Let me give you that book. We are transitioning our email service over as well. So there's a little lag in this Daily Dose of Dixie Monday through Friday. If you haven't gotten that and you've given us an email address, just be patient. You will get it uh, as we change over our email system. So that's just a, a uh, you know, in the weeds kind of thing, what's going on behind the scenes. Uh, but uh, do give us that email address. You get the free ebook anyways, and uh, it's a great resource. Uh, also, while you're there, click on that support tab, and you can donate to the institute. You can donate monthly, annually, or one-time gift. We also have a new donation interface. We've had it for a few weeks now, but it is a great interface. Uh, it's much better than our old one, and much more easy to use. Much easier, I should say, to use. Um, and uh, it is a, a great way to support what we do, whether it's the the, uh, the podcast, the website, conferences, which of course we're on pause with those right now because of COVID nineteen. Our summer school has been canceled for this year, but we're trying to come up with some alternatives. So just be patient. There might be something out there that we've got that would that would do that uh, and I think still be a lot of fun for people as well and maybe even better. So uh, just to say that, we've got some other things we, we started working on. We're, we're still looking at funding, some other issues with those. So, But your support definitely helps. Of course, it's tax deductible to the, to the full extent of the law. So consider that donation. Uh, also click on that uh, shop tab under that donate button, and uh, it'll take you out to our web store where you can get our Abbeville Institute apparel. It's embroidered, high-quality stuff. comes out of North Carolina. It's great material, uh, all kinds of different colors. you got T-shirts, hats, golf shirts, fleece. Uh, you've got all kinds of cool stuff. Uh, so get out there and get your Abbeville Institute apparel. It's well worth it. Um, and, of course, please share our material on social media. Download our free app. Uh, get that at your app store free of charge. Uh, again, your support helps us pay for that every year. All this stuff is not free that we do. So anything you want to do, contribute, even if it's just a little bit per month. I mean, how much is a Southern tradition worth to you? Is it worth you know, three bucks a month, five bucks a month? Five bucks a month. And I know it, in these trying economic times, it's difficult because uh, you know people are struggling right now. But if you do have the means and you can continue to support the Institute, please consider doing so. All right. All that said, uh, let's talk about the material for the week. And of course, this week, April 27th, is Confederate Memorial Day. And it was fitting that we ran a piece by James Ronald Ken Ronnie Kennedy, who really needs no introduction. If you're listening to this podcast, you probably know who Ronnie Kennedy is, um, who the Kennedy brothers are. Their, their best-selling book, The South is Right, is sold well over you know hundreds of thousands of copies. I don't know the exact number now, but it is a lot of books. And uh, it was, for many people, the gateway into this exploration of the Southern tradition. It's a popular history. It was published in 1992. And I remember my first introduction to the Kennedy brothers 
uh, was Why Not Freedom, which I was kicking around my local bookstore when I was in college. Uh, and I saw that book, and I and I was you know kind of interested. I was you know thinking about uh, this was probably 1990, uh, 1995 maybe when I when I saw this book, and um, I uh, I picked it up and I was I was hooked. And I remember you know I was telling all my friends about this book, and of course in that particular book, and it was shocking to me at the time because I was still very much institutionalized. You couldn't talk about things like secession or the Tenth Amendment; those were for, forbidden subjects. But here is this book, and at the last part of the book, it really gets into that. Hey, well, look, let's start talking about decentralization. Let's talk about secession. Let's talk about these things. And I thought, oh. I mean, that's something I've never really heard anybody say before. And I started talking to my friends about it who were, of course, conservatives. And they, oh, no, that's, that's, that's crazy talk. That's crazy talk. I mean, people were kind of making fun of it. And I thought, there's something to this. Uh, why, are we, why are we, you know, later on, why are we supporting Bob Dole? You know, why, why are we doing that? And, of course, I did because I'm still, you know, all right, well, yeah, we should just go along with the mainstream stuff. It's one of the most embarrassing things I've ever done in my life. But why are we doing these things? And, and uh, so this got me interested in the Southern tradition. Of course, then I bought, I got The South is Right. And that was, you know, an eye-opener for me because I'd never, I had a, a professor, I can't say I'd never, because my, my mentor as an undergraduate uh, was certainly instrumental as well in, uh, in uh, exposed me to some of these ideas. And so um, I had heard these things before. Then I got The South is Right, and I thought, man, I mean, this is great. And it's, it's kind of been that book that if you have it, uh, you know, and you and people see it, they're like, oh, yeah. I mean, so this guy's kind of in the club. You know, that's, these are – and a colleague of mine, we talk about that. Um, but um, that book, uh, for a lot of people, just mainstream people, everyday people, was on the shelf there at your Barnes & Noble, your Books A Million, wherever you got your local bookstore. There it was. The South was right, and people would pick it up, and they'd get it because it was so shocking. Big Confederate flag on the cover. I mean, it was a, a wonderful marketing job, number one. And number two, the book's a good book, and it's a popular history, and people can read it. And the Kennedys write in a way. They are very good, both Ronnie and Donnie. I'll say this. I've heard them speak I don't know how many times. And I love it when they write stuff because they write in such a persuasive and they speak in such a persuasive way and they're able to communicate ideas in such a good way that anybody can get them. They're, they're not academics and that is a, the highest compliment I can pay them, in fact, that they're not academics and they don't write for an academic audience. They write for uh, the average Southerner who just is tired of people saying Man, the South is a bunch of hillbillies and rednecks, and they're the deplorables and everything else. And their point is, all right, well, if that's true, let's get out. I mean, why are we even? Why are we? Why do we have the Stockholm syndrome here? Why are we still giving allegiance to that federal authority? Why are we doing it? If that's true, if you really hate us that much, if we are just people to be despised, then why do you even want us here? Why not? Why can't you just let us go, right? So I love the Kennedys and how they do this. And I don't know if they listen to the podcast or not. I, I, I think they do. But um, I would say that, you know, I hope they hear this because uh, they need to keep doing what they're doing. Of course, they're always very good about being persuasive 
to a mass audience. In this piece that they wrote between Grant and Lee, we've done this before. We've compared Grant and Lee. We've compa- compared Lee to we compared Lincoln to Washington. Uh, we've compared you know Lincoln to Lee. We've done these things. Grant and Lee, we did this not long ago again, but this piece I think is fun because it's not about. We did it through a book review a couple of weeks back, uh, Joe Wolverton. But this particular piece is not about the General Grant or the General Lee. It's about Lee and Grant as men, and more importantly, their views on government, or at least the long-lasting impact of Grant and Lee on the general government in the United States. And what do I mean by that? Well, the Kennedys, of course, get into the fact that when you look at President Grant, which is an important part of, pre- of, of who Grant is, President Grant, you look at all of the misconceptions about Grant. And, of course, the point that I think, the, I love this point that, that Ronnie made here. He says, quote, Nationalists owe their primary allegiance to the national government and said allegiance is seldom constrained by traditional Christian morality. Grant's apologists attempt to obscure Grant's moral failings by draping him in the robes of one fighting to end slavery. But Grant's wife held personal slaves at the beginning of the war. These slaves were not freed by Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation. Lincoln's proclamation applied to slaves in territories controlled by the Confederate States, while exempting slaves in territories controlled by the United States. Mrs. Grant's slaves were freed well after the war by the passage of the 13th Amendment. According to one account, Grant's excuse for not freeing his wife's slaves was that good help is hard to come by these days. Uh, I mean, amazing, right? It's uh, it's so funny that you have this... Uh, <laughs> this... Um, myth around Grant uh, and who he was and uh, this moral self-righteousness, which is, you know, fake on the neoconservative right who run around uh, promoting Grant or Lincoln uh, or the left who also do the exact same thing. Now, the left is more critical of Grant because Grant was a Republican. And their mind is R is bad, you know, D is good. And so Grant has to be the worst president in American history, which I think you can make a case that he's pretty awful. Uh, But um, he wouldn't be in one of my top group for president. But certainly um, Grant is president, and he brings up all the things that Grant did, whether it was, you know, expelling the Jews from um, his areas of command, uh, whether it's the Indian Wars after his, uh, after when he was president, after his time as general, he he does a nice job. Whether it was using blacks as um, pawns in this political game to win control of Congress, which I think Phil Lee has done a nice job of pointing out as well. Um, you know, this is uh, this is U.S. Grant. In contrast, you have Lee, who wasn't necessarily for secession. He wasn't, I mean, he, he was against nullification in the 1830s, but yet Lee always supported Virginia in, in his last act as, uh, as part of the United States Army and saying, I have to go with my home state. I can't fight my own people. Um, and so a reluctant secessionist, to say the least. Uh, and of course, we've done so much with Lee, we don't need to get into what, you know, the, the greatness of Robert E. Lee. But I think Kennedy's contrast between Grant and Lee in this particular piece is spot on, particularly when you look at politics and what Lee said about 
society. And then, of course, he ends the piece and what Lee said about um, constitutional government. And, uh, and when we get to the end of the piece, uh, the Kennedys bring up what Winston Churchill said about Lee, what Winfield Scott said about Lee, what President Eisenhower said about Lee. It's important to, to have those things there. Look, what Franklin Roosevelt said about Lee and Confederates. I mean, Franklin Roosevelt is the poster child for the left. They love this guy. And Franklin Roosevelt loved the South. He did. I mean, look, he spent a lot of time here. Whether he ruined it or not is one thing. But Franklin Roosevelt loved the South. Uh, he liked being in the South. Now, I mean, he had that certain air to him. He was going to come and change the South, make it better. But... Uh, certainly, Roosevelt was at least respectful of the South. And there was some self-righteous morality to Franklin Roosevelt. And I think this is where the piece on Tuesday is. It's one of the best pieces we've ever, ever put on the website as a book review in particular. It's by Jason Morgan, one of our two resident scholars in Japan. The other is John Marcourt. Um, so we've got two of them. Jason Morgan, a professor of history in Japan, where he has a little more leeway, I think. You can be, uh, you know, <laughs> very critical of the North and the United States and Japan and Yankee uh, Yankee destruction in Japan. I mean, they felt it firsthand in World War II. But uh, he wrote this piece, and it's reviewing uh, Elizabeth Varen's Armies of Deliverance. And he and I had a little email exchange about this. And, um, look, Varen has written two pretty good books. I mean, this book is good. It's, as he said, it has a, the obligatory SJW stuff at the beginning and end of the book. And uh, she wrote a book uh, entitled Disunion, which was pretty good as well. We've never reviewed that on the website, but it's pretty good. It talks about the fear of disunion and how that drove certain elements of American society, uh, e even beginning at the time of the Constitution. There was some discussion about that early on uh, as you know, one of the reasons why we had the Constitution, because there was this fear of disunion. But what that shows very clearly is that disunion was always possible, that people were trying to, they were afraid of it, but they knew it could happen. It wasn't illegal. It wasn't unconstitutional. It wasn't anything except the American way. People didn't want it. They thought it was a bad thing to do, but they understood it was the American way. And this particular book is about the Northern Army and what it really was. And I love the first line of this particular piece. Yankee arrogance may be the most dangerous malady on the planet. I mean, here's a guy writing from Japan, and they see it. Uh, John Marcourt told me that uh, there was a lady, and she, she, a Japanese lady, come to Georgia. And I think I told this story here before, but come to Georgia. And uh, had gone to Stone Mountain, had been around the South, and seen what Southerners would do with Confederate monuments and other things. And she thought, isn't this great that the defeated people still have love for their ancestors. And they put up these monuments to these people, and unashamedly so, and say, you know what? Our ancestors were still great men. And she went back to Japan, and she said, you know what we need to do? We need to put up monuments to our Japanese soldiers from World War II. These were great men. They were our ancestors. Uh, they were 
uh, very, I mean, look, we wouldn't be here without them. They were great people. We may not have agreed with everything they supported, but they were great men and we should revere them. And he, the reaction was exactly what you would expect out of people that have been Yankee-fied. You can't do that because they were, and it was people that were using examples from the United States to say you can't support these Japanese soldiers. The war, Yankee arrogance may be the most dangerous malady on the planet. I think there's, it's one of the best statements we've ever had on this particular website. Communist engineering is deadly to be sure, but before Wuhan, there was Chernobyl and the Great Leap Forward and other things. But whereas communism has a shelf life, Yankee arrogance never dies. Yankees grow stronger by the decade, more convinced of their superiority with every catastrophe they inflict on the world. They're saving. I mean, it's so good. And he says there have been many studies on Yankee arrogance written over the years. Many of these are unintentional. When David Habersham wrote The Best and the Brightest, for example, he probably did not mean to imply that the debacle of Vietnam was caused by a couple of Massachusetts boys and know-it-alls from San Francisco. But it's hard to escape the conclusion all the same. Lyndon jo Baines Johnson, a Texan, carried on the Yankees' project of, uh, by, by cluster bomb and so earned for himself the title of Honorary Northerner, which, come to think of it, should be the subtitle of Robert Cairo's bibliographic saga about Mr. Great Society. On the in, in, uh, intentional side must be mentioned Ronald and Donald Kennedy's Yankee Empire, perhaps the finest explanation and indictment of Yankee arrogance written since the heyday of Murray Rothbard, James J. Martin, and uh, Harry Elmer Barnes. Uh, so, I mean, look, and he gets into this book, Armies of Deliverance, and he says, in the email exchange, he says, look, the Yankees were open about what they were doing, what they were saying. And he says, the reason I do this, I, he, this is a very glowing review. He said that people like Varen would hate it that we would actually say this book was good. They would hate it. So he does these things. Um, because he said that, you know, you don't you don't need to, and it, you don't need to make this stuff up. They say it themselves. I love his conclusion, too. Um, he says... Um, Armies of Deliverance is an excellent introduction to the true motivation of Yankees and their invasion and devastation of the Old South. Varen writes clearly and fluently, and her prose is rooted in a truly impressive body of research and archival mastery. She has a knack for finding the right source to quote at the right time. Scholars who regurgitate secondary sources usually bore their readers to tears, but Varen works in the parchment of the past, and so her storytelling is crisp, vibrant, immediate, and true. This is superb history writing, with very limited Obiter dicta. Varen's scholarly dedication to getting the facts of the past down straight is packed in a narrative, but not badly bent to a presentist agenda. There can be little doubt that Varen is no Southern partisan, but to her credit, she almost completely absents herself from the story, preferring instead to let her subjects speak for themselves. And those subjects speak volumes. The South is overrun by, let us admit it, ideological lunatics in the spring of 1861, and the consequences of that Yankee arrogance have still not found their end. It is well to buy and read Elizabeth Varen's splendid armies of deliverance and to remember that common to the invaders were sentiments such as these expressed by a certain Lieutenant Samuel Fisk, 14th Connecticut Infantry, as he surveyed the carnage of Antietam. Quote, I saw all over the scene of devastation and horror yesternight one of the loveliest double rainbows that ever mortal eyes looked upon. I took it as an emblem of success to our blessed Union cause that out of the horrors of battle shall arise the blessings of a more secure freedom and stable system of liberal, liberal government. Yes, look at all those dead bodies. 
Isn't it great that those guys are there dead because we're going to get better liberal government? Contrast that to Robert E. Lee that said, it is well that war is so terrible. I mean, look at this carnage at Fredericksburg. Else men would learn to love it too much because we're winning. But he's looking at that as horrible. Um, he says of the scene of devastation and horror yesterday, one of the loveliest double rainbows. I mean, look at this. The, the sun, we're going to ride over the rainbow bridge. The sun is coming up tomorrow, and it's going to be a great day for Yankees because we're going to get better liberal government. And, of course, he brings up the fact that Varon points out that when the Yankees went to war in 1861, they were going to save white Southerners from themselves. When the white Southerners didn't want it, then they had to save black Southerners. So then it became, you know, they changed the war aims and everything. So this is a war of righteousness. Um, and I mean, I, I, and then he says at the end, it is doubtful that any sane person could look over a field of battle, see a double rainbow, and take it as God's blessing of the butchery that had the day before ensued. Many, most Yankees could do just that, though. Read Elizabeth Varon's newest book and find out for yourself just what goes through the minds then and now of our self-proclaimed deliverers. Isn't this good? I mean, we're going to get this great stuff out of this. I mean, isn't it good that the economy is shutting down for COVID because at the end of the day... It's going to be a deliverance for, uh, you know, some type of social engineering program. Be good for democracy or green energy or some other nonsense. Isn't it good? It's good. We got to love these things. Got to love this Yankee deliverance that we're all getting. Uh, then, of course, we had a piece on uh, Wednesday, plotting through the ills of life. This is an interesting <laughs> look at. So Forrest Marion uh, focuses on an old Baptist minister from uh, North Carolina, Elder Mel Martin Ross. Um, and the way he does it, of course, Ross had a lot of personal tragedy in his life. And so he brings us up in a setting of modern COVID and all the things we're going through. Not that it, we're going to come out better on the other side, but how Southerners who dealt with tragedy deal uh, you know, dealt with these things, and how, they, how he dealt with these things in his own life. And how faith was important in this. And this, of course, is a very important part of the Southern tradition. Faith. Uh, faith. And, and what faith means. Uh, as you're going through struggles and trials and tribulations, Christ, Christianity is a, is a substantial backbone of the Southern tradition. And you can't get around it. So we do run these pieces on Southern religion. And, of course, this is not to say that uh, this is a Baptist minister, and uh, you know Forrest Marion is a Baptist, but uh, the the timeless message here goes beyond denomination. Uh, it, I mean, you could be a Methodist, you could be a Presbyterian, you could be an Episcopalian, you could be a Catholic, you could be uh, an Eastern Orthodox, and this would all say, mean the same as a core Christian value of faith in times of crisis. Uh, and I think that's what this piece really does, and it really hits home. And of course, you know, uh, Ross served in the American War for Independence. We had a wonderful poem about that um, on Thursday. But it's that reliance on faith in times of crisis and family and community that's so important right now. Um, as we're looking at, you know, ex substantial economic devastation uh, because of government. 
um, and uh, even personal devastation. This virus has been very nasty, and it's it's been hard on people. There have been a lot of people die. Uh, even people that get sick from it, it's a hard virus to get through. Uh, it's not easy. Um, and so you have to have some faith that things that you will improve, your health will improve, and hopefully it does. And if it doesn't, um, you know, then there's the, the part of faith in what's to come. But I think that Southerners knew this. Not, I mean, look, there are a lot of great, you know, about Northern Christians as well. Uh, but today I think Southerners still have that faith more than any other section of the United States, which is why, you know, you have Obama disparaging say that these Southerners cling to their, to their Bible and guns. Well, I mean, it's about personal protection. The Bible is about personal protection in many ways. It's, it's, it's about protecting your character, your life. It's still about your life. Uh, people that bristle at, you know, the restrictions of biblical restrictions don't understand those restrictions are there to help you live a better life so you have less pain in life. It's about those type of things. So uh, I think that um, this is a great piece in these in these t- very trying times. And he even says that at the end of the piece. He concludes by saying, uh, in 2020, as millions face the uncertainties, even the fears of an unknown virus and its impacts all around us, many Christians particularly may particularly be encouraged by the life of this faithful pastor of two centuries ago. Elder Martin Ross of rural northeastern North Carolina, whose example points laser-like toward the true shepherd and keeper of his flock. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that's a nice way to conclude that piece. And, of course, then we have the uh, the poetry for the week, uh, which is Clyde Wilson's series, Southern Poets and Poems, Part 4. We're going to have probably, I think, like 26 parts of this. So you got a lot of poems coming. And it's a great thing. You know, uh, the uh, when you look at, Western civilization, you look at the change in education. One of the things that the during the Enlightenment or the, the Renaissance, which led into the Enlightenment, but more the more the, the early Renaissance, one of the things that the uh, the er, the early proponents of a change in education advocated was reading poetry and moral philosophy, because that would help people. You should read a little poetry every day to get you going. And of course, poetry and music work hand in hand. A lot of poetry is written to be put to song. And uh, so that's an important lesson. Um, But uh, this particular piece about King's Mountain, King's Mountain is one of the best, uh, one of the most important battles of the American War for Independence. And um, it's, uh, it's such an important part of the fabric of that war and because it was a battle between loyalists, Tory loyalists, militia essentially, and Patriot militia. And it was a rousing victory for the Patriots. I mean they they won a great victory at this particular battle and these mountain these mountain men came down and won this battle and it was so good. I mean just so good. Um and you had people like John uh, John Xavier, which we know as Severe, but his name was supposed to be Xavier. So you look at Sevierville, Tennessee, it's supposed to be Xavierville, Tennessee, but you had people like him and um, you know, Campbell in Cleveland. Uh, they're gallant men uh, fighting this great, uh, great victory for this great victory. Um, and they call these loyalists royal slaves, the unknown writer of this poem, the loyal, the royal slaves, the royal owls, flew high on every hand. 
but soon they settled, gave a howl, and quartered to Cleveland. I could, would not tell the number of Tories slain that day, but surely it is certain that none did run away, for all that were a-living were happy to give up, so let us make thanksgiving and pass the bright tin cup to all the brave regiments. Let's toast them for their health, and may our good country have quietude and wealth. Um, a great poem. And then, of course, our continued interest in Southern Rock for the apocalypse as we're quarantined, sitting at home. More and more states are lifting those quarantine restrictions, but you still need a soundtrack, a Southern Rock soundtrack for this. And one thing I'll say is I've been getting a lot of emails and other comments. Hey, what about this? What about this? We're going to have a, a reader's choice uh, at the end of this. So we, we have our list and a lot of the stuff you're suggesting. Some, well, I say a lot, some of it's on the list. We just haven't gotten to it yet. Some of it isn't. So we're going to have the Reader's Choice uh, article where I put a lot of that stuff in it. And we've got it at the end. We have a piece by Jack uh, John Marquardt. I mentioned Japan. He sent a piece on Dixie and some other things. So we're going to have, this will continue out. I mean, this music is certainly something that makes the South the South. And so... Uh, this has been a lot of fun to do, but uh, we're going to have a lot more Leonard Skinner and Allman Brothers and Molly Hatchett, some of the big bands, Blackfoot. Uh, this particular week, of course, we had uh, some you know, bands like Wet Willie and Towns Van Zant, the singer-songwriter who's not necessarily usually affiliated with Southern Rock, but is certainly there. The Highwaymen, which is usually associated with the country act, but I think is a, is a Southern Rock song, at least the song I chose. Um, you know, but bands like Doc Holliday, and of course we're going to get more Charlie Daniels, and uh, we had Whiskey Myers, and uh, Bruce Hornsby in the range, which often isn't considered to be Southern rock, but it is. I mean, Bruce Hornsby is from the Virginia Sound. You wouldn't have had Bruce Hornsby without the South. So a lot of great stuff this week, and of course when you look at poetry and music and all those things, this is what really makes the South and Southern culture so important. Um, it's what makes the South the South. That invasion that Jason Morgan talked about led Southerners to a self-reflection. I remember reading, if you read things like Augusta, Jane's, Augusta Jane Evans and you look at some of the things she was writing during the war and that she hoped that the war would at least produce a glorious revitalization of what people thought about being Southern. And this is, Drew Gilpin Faust said, look, Confederate nationalism is fabricated. It's all created during the war. Southerners weren't self-consciously nationalist until the war, and it was all about slavery in reality. Well, you don't get that from looking at the people who are writing about uh, you know, literature and poetry and music. It's great uh, interest in these things. You don't get that feeling from that. But, of course, that's where uh, we are. Uh, and I think that when you look at Southern culture, you have to talk about religion, you have to talk about poetry and literature, and you got to talk about music. Those are very important parts of Southern culture and Southern tradition, the Southern society, and which is why we do those things at the Abbeville Institute. And I'll leave off with this. We really do appreciate any support you give us uh, in these, and again, these very trying times. We're still trying to be here for you. We're still trying to do some things. we got some ideas, but we just have to try to put them into play and uh, not that's not always easy. We don't have a massive staff of people. In fact, we have very few people that do much with this. So um, any support you can give us is greatly appreciated as we all have other things we're doing. And uh, this is, uh, you know, a labor of love for most of us. So uh, we do appreciate it. And we hope you enjoy this podcast every week and share it around. Please get our material. Please, you know, please like it. Please review it. 
do all those things you can do to help promote the Institute and get more people thinking about the Southern tradition, which is vital in these very difficult times. We'll see you next week. And until next time, good day. Good day.